Hello, and welcome to Brie and Friends, a podcast about nothing and everything. I'm your host, Brie Simmons, and this is a mini-sode, guys. There is no in Friends, also. It's just me. Um, and the mini-sodes, they're a little bit more informal. Not like the actual longer episodes are any more structured, but the mini-sodes will just be more of a smaller half hour to 45 minute ditty here uh with me just chatting with you talking to you guys um and what i want to chat with you about today now i i want to preface this with everybody has their own opinion and everybody interprets art in their own way like art meaning Paintings, sculptures, literature, in this case, music. That being said, I have put together a small list of songs, five or six of them, that I feel have just been mistreated, misunderstood, misused, and just tossed about in situations they ought not be in throughout music history. And an example of this, like say you're at a funeral and all of a sudden they start playing Another One Bites the Dust. Like, yeah, okay, sure, it literally means that, but let's not play that at a funeral. Let's not make everybody feel awkward. It makes for a funny situation, yes, but not saying that I've heard Another One Bites the Dust at a funeral. I haven't yet. Um, but my list is similar. We're going to start with one of my favorite artists, Bruno Mars. He's got a song called Marry You, which I'm sure all of you have heard. I'll play a little clip of it here. It's a beautiful night. We're looking for something dumb to do. You're singing already, right? I mean, it's a catchy song. The man knows how to write a catchy tune. Well, it was him and Phil Lawrence and Ari. I don't know if it's Levin or Levine, but their production group is called the Smeasingtons. I love them. More on them later. Um, but right off the bat, Homie says, I'm looking for something dumb to do. So you know what? Let's go get married. Let's go get hitched. And it's like, no, don't, mm-mm. don't play this at my wedding. Don't play this during a proposal because that, that's, no, marrying me is not anything dumb to do. And if you're looking at it, which is the way I think that they wanted you to look at it anyway, as like a little fun song, like you and your guy or girl, you're both crazy drunk drunken in love not maybe on beyonce's drunken love level but you know the goofy kind of drunken love level and you're like and maybe you're near vegas and you're like you know what fuck it let's go to vegas have fat elvis marry us it'll be fun and then it's like woo, let's do it drive there with the top down um that kind of vibe sure but all i hear it at are real live weddings 
not fun-loving ones, like those serious ones, like where they have the Catholic mass beforehand and things are super, super serious. And then you get to the reception and you hear this mess and it's like, mm, you didn't take those vows too serious, did you? <laughs> and then they go on to say, if you wake up and you want to break up, that's cool. I don't blame you. It was fun, girl. Whatever. And again, super fun lyrics, not like bagging the song or anything, because I obviously love Bruno Mars and I love this song. It's super fun. It's super catchy. When it first came out, I sang it all the doggone time. And I did think um, at first, after first listening to it, like, you know what? I probably do need to have this playing at a wedding of mine. But because I think too much, I listen to it again and really listen to the lyrics and I'm like, ooh, no, no, no. No, thank you, Bruno. No, thank you. Maybe on a whim, like if me and Bruno Mars are drunken in Vegas and he's like, I want to marry you. I'd be like, okay, yes. But <laughs> not at any actual wedding and especially not during a proposal. I would say no, because you're not serious about this. Sorry. Sorry if that makes me unfun, I guess. Now, word on the street is, according to Philip Lawrence, anyway, one of the songwriters and members of the Smeezingtons, um, they came upon the song just from playing around with some chords and ad-libbing and whatnot, and they sang the phrase, I, I think I want to marry you, and here's the song. <laughs> Um, and it was from his first album, Doo-Wops and Hooligans. I think that was 2010. And they said when they wrote it, they didn't think it would, you know, be that big a deal, that big a thing. They didn't think it would be or have such an influence on pop culture. And they said when they saw some of the videos I was talking about where they had the proposals and the flash mobs and stuff using the song and how many different uh, videos used it and um, it was used in different wedding receptions and they saw all of that, they got a little teary-eyed while watching it because, you know, something they created that they thought really wouldn't do much or go far is being used and played all over the world to make people happy, you know? So there you go. There's a turnaround. Don't play it at my wedding, but I get it, is what I'm saying. Maybe the next song I want to talk about is Every Breath You Take by The Police. Now, at first glance, this song seems like the most tender, soulful, I don't know, outreach, maybe, for love that you have heard. Like, maybe you thought, at first listen, Sting just loves this woman, wants to be near her and with her. Every breath she takes, he wants to be there. He wants, he, you know, but, um, I feel, I feel like Sting's given some stalker vibes in this one. And I think this is a general consensus. Like, I know the last one, maybe that made me seem like a little bit of a grump, but this one though, like you have to acknowledge the stalker vibes coming from it. And if I hear one more person sing this as like they serenade their partner, I'm calling the cops. Every breath you take, 
Like, staying. Ease up, bruh. Like, that's... He's given off level 7 clinger there. And I don't... I, I wouldn't say 10, because if he were a level 10 clinger, he would have been right there by homegirl. It wouldn't have been, I, I'll be watching you. It's every breath you take, I am right there next to your sister. Inhale, exhale, right there. He's, he's watching from afar, though. And that's a little bit more creepy. Um... And upon further digging, and I, I kind of already knew this to be true, but Sting himself wrote the song um, because of the separation he got from his wife at the time and starting a relationship with his wife's best friend. And they lived next door to homegirl. Like, ooh, Sting, really? But... Um, he wrote this song, apparently, while he escaped to the Caribbean. How nice that must be, huh? Life's giving you issues. Just go to the Caribbean. No problem. Um, and he said, the, it's the words of a possessive lover who is watching every breath you take and every move you make from the man's own mouth. So, I mean, stop playing this as your first dance at your wedding. It's not okay. Like, again, if I hear this, I'm calling the authorities. I'll go to you after the dance and ask, are you okay? Do you feel safe? Because that, mm -mm, you don't want that. You don't want that for your marriage. As a matter of fact, I found a funny story. Not really a story. More of a quote. Quote story from Sting. And he said that um, he doesn't get, I'm paraphrasing, but he doesn't get why people don't see how sinister and pos like and possessive this song is and he said the meaning is pretty clear to him and many others i guess um but there are still people who thinks it's like this beautiful love song and i guess in a way it's a love song but not in the way that these people are using it and he said people will come up to him and say oh i played this um as the first dancer, the first song at my wedding. And he told them, well, good luck. And, you know, only about 5% of the world's population can understand what Sting is saying in any of his songs anyway. I mean, <laughs> so maybe we all just misheard and just went along with the first couple lines we heard and thought, oh, such a beautiful love song. So cute. But no, it's not. It's not cute. He needed to seek help. I'm assuming he got it, but besides all that, the song did fairly well. I don't know if you guys have heard of it, um, but it was number one here in the U.S. and in Canada and Ireland, um, South Africa, too. International. Um, and it was released in 1983, um, and it was a single from their album, Murder by Numbers. So while... I love Sting and the police and this song. Again, I just don't need this played at any sort of romantic event of mine, please. And thank you. The next song I want to talk about is Hallelujah, originally done by Leonard Cohen and remade so many times by other folks. Um, but the two I'm going to be referencing anyway are the original and the one covered by Jeff Buckley. Um, now, this is a beautiful piece of music. 
I love it. I love everything about it. And I think people hear this beautifulness at the beginning, like the nice arpeggios that are playing and the super simple, but again, beautiful melody, especially in uh, covers done by Rufus Wainwright and John Cale, where you hear like the nice little piano at the beginning. It's it. I, it gives people a peace of mind, I guess, makes them feel peaceful, gives it a spiritual sense. You hear hallelujah a bunch of times and you're like, oh, God, heaven, all that jazz. And because of this, I think I've heard it too many times used in those in memoriam segments and all that. Um, and the most recent I've heard it um, in a situation like that, I actually. I mean, not that my opinion matters, but this one, I thought, you know, this is fine. This is all right. It was really nice. Um, When Chris Cornell's daughter sang Hallelujah um, as a memorial for her father and Chester Bennington, um, because I think she said that Cornell thought it was the most beautiful, most perfect song. And that I thought was fitting. It's a nice tribute. And that girl has an amazing voice. Side note. Um, but I think just, time after that, that, well, not after, it was well before um, that tribute happened. I heard it used on, I think it was either The Voice or X Factor, one of those singing competitions. Um, the judges, it was The Voice because they had Adam Levine, Christina Aguilera, and everybody up there. Um, and I appreciate that they were doing a tribute or an in memoriam to the victims of the Sandy Hook Elementary School shooting back in 2012. But they used this song and they had little kids come up and sing it with them um, and had the pictures of all these children, all these children and teachers and stuff up while they were singing it. And I just thought, okay, yes. I, I get what you're going for, but not with this song, please. And I'm sure I'm one of the only people who thought that, again, overthinking the lyrics and the meaning of things. Because, again, when you first hear this, it's a beautiful song. It's moved me to tears many times. It's especially if you use it in that situation. Um, But I just don't think it fits. And... Similar to the other songs, it was sort of the first line where I'm like, mm, maybe not this song. Um, I'll play the clip so you don't have to hear my rendition of it. And I also think, and I'll talk about it more after I play the clip, that if you listen to the original, there's no way you would use that for like something as somber as in memoriams and all that. There was a secret chord that David played, and it pleased the Lord. But you don't really care for music, do you? It goes like this, the fourth, the fifth, the minor fall, the major lift, the I've heard that version 
of the song used in, I think it was Watchmen during the sex scene. So, again, going back to how you can interpret art in many different ways. So you go from um, superhero sex to in memoriam. Just like that. Um, <laughs> and I think more people interpret the song that way as well, that it has to do with relationships and love and relations and things of the sort. And, you know, I, I don't know if I get all that from it, but I definitely don't get anything as somber as like a hymn. Not that all hymns are somber, but you know what I mean. I don't, I wouldn't use it in the way it's been overused, in my opinion, on. <laughs> and, and I, I guess it wasn't really well received when it first came out, the original. Um, it was number 59 on the Billboard Hot 100 in the U.S. It was number one in France and in New Zealand. So, you know, that's pretty cool. Um, but the remakes came out and the remakes did fairly well, like Jeff Buckley's especially. And I think people hear more. I of think his. when people hear Jeff Buckley's version... They get that sense of peacefulness and and tenderness and, you know, that sort of deal. And I think that's why it's used the way it is, that version of it anyway, not so much the original. Um, but going back to Watchmen, I liked the way they used the original. That was, it made me remember that scene. Um, <laughs> and I'll play a clip from Jeff Buckley's. and. I'll play a part that, again, it's a reason why I don't think it should be played. Like, the first line, anyway. I think people hear that. The I've heard there was a secret chord that David played and it pleased the Lord. That, they're like, oh, God. Music. We can use this, right? <laughs> um, but then it goes on to, but you don't really care for music, do you? And you have the, it goes like this, the fourth, the fifth that whole thing but that's just more of him describing the chord progression music theory fun <laughs> um and then you end on the baffled king composing hallelujah and maybe people hear that and think yes death peacefulness this is fine and they just hear hallelujah over and over again and just you know assume but then the part that really gets me is and the part they had on the voice is when you had people up there soulfully singing um part where they say i've seen your flag on the marble arch and love is not a victory march it's a cold and it's a broken hallelujah that part i'm like mm, maybe not for a memorial service and the bit about she tied you to her kitchen chair. She broke your throne and she cut your hair. And from your lips, she drew the hallelujah. Again, they had Adam Levine or somebody up there on stage with all these kids singing this in light of a school shooting. And I'm not saying that they shouldn't have, but it was horrible. Because again, I get the intention. But me, I just thought, ooh, maybe not. 
Like, it, I'm not going to lie, it did get me a little teary-eyed just to see all those kids up there singing and the emotion they put behind it, you know? And I think that's another thing with this song. It's really, it's really good for that. Like, you can't just straight sing these lyrics like they don't mean anything. Whatever they mean to you, whoever is singing it, they always put their all into it and put so much emotion behind it that it just makes you believe, you know? Your faith was strong, but you needed proof. You saw her bathing on the roof. Her beauty and the moonlight overthrew you. And she tied you to her kitchen chair. And she broke your throne and she cut your hair. And from your lips she drew the very pretty very moving but side note the other place i heard this song i don't remember which version it was though was on shrek when they were when him and princess fiona were walking back to uh Duloc? is that the name of the place yeah when they were walking back there they were playing this song so you know i guess different strokes for different folks with this song but I just don't think it belongs in memorial services or Christmas pageants just because it has the word hallelujah in it. Um, and I take back the memorial service thing because the one for Chester Bennington and Chris Cornell, that was fine. For little children, though, no. The next song on my list here is Iris by the Goo Goo Dolls. Um, it was released in 1998, and since then, I'm pretty sure it's been every other high school's, especially Midwestern high school's, uh, last dance at prom. And with this one, again, first glance through, it's like, oh, this is sweet. This is a nice little sentiment to dance with your high school honey to. But, but by the middle of the song, I just want somebody to go check on him. Like, I don't think he's okay. Someone please go send some help. Let's stop dancing and get some help. Here's a little clip of the beginning where it tricks you. And I give up forever to touch you Cause I know that you feel me somehow You're the closest to heaven that I'll ever be And I don't want to go home so, you know, you're listening to that, you're cuddled up next to your prom date, next to the prom king, and everything's right with the world. But then, you know, later on, it just gets a little dark to me. Um, but I did look up uh, the, uh, I don't know, the songwriting process for this one. And I didn't know this because I've never seen the film, nor do I think I've heard of it, actually. So maybe I've been living under a rock. but. It's for the movie City of Angels, starring Nick Cage, everyone's favorite. And I guess Nick Cage's character is an angel that is sent to help humans make their transition into the afterlife. So he ends up falling in love with this human, played by Meg Ryan, and he's got to choose between being with her or eternal life and I don't know what he ends up choosing but 
I do know that this song was playing um, during, I guess, said scene when he's thinking things over. And that, I think, is pretty cool. Um, and I also read in an interview, um, the songwriter whose last name I can't pronounce, Johnny Rezenik from the Goo Goo Dolls. Um, he was saying that the film influenced the song, obviously. And he said he was thinking about the situation with Nick Cage's character and how he was willing to give up his own immortality just to be um, able to feel something and feel something very human with this other human. And he just thought that that was amazing. And thus came Iris. Um, and with that in mind, I'm like, okay, I get it, but I still wouldn't want to dance to it at my prom because a little later, like I said, it just gets dark to me. I'll play part of the clip I'm talking about now. Everything feels like the movies. Yeah, you bleed just to know you're alive. beautiful song and I get the meaning behind it and I think it works really well with the premise of that movie I haven't seen City of Angels but based off what I heard from it or about it I mean seems like Iris fits it pretty perfectly so kudos to them for that um here in the U.S. it was number one on the Billboard um, adult top 40 tracks um Number nine on the Hot 100, so still up there in that top 10. Um, number one for radio songs. Number one for top 40 mainstream. Number one for alternative. It did really well, obviously. It was number one in Italy, too, and in Canada and Australia. Fun facts. I found out that Avril Lavigne actually played this for her first dance with her now divorced husband from some 41 i forget the fellow's name so there's that i mean i don't know much about avril and her relationship with the fellow from some 41 but maybe playing this song was a bad omen i mean who knows but again the overall meaning or background for the song According to the songwriters, anyway, again, everyone takes what they want from it. I really like the meaning behind it. I think it's awesome. It is a really heavy thought. And I was looking at the comments when I looked the song up on YouTube, and I guess it's helped a lot of people get through a lot of shit. So kudos to Goo Goo Dolls. Kudos to Iris. Um, It's almost 20 years old, guys. It was released April 7th, 1998. Holy crap. Now, next, we have Chandelier by Sia. I absolutely love this song. I love everything about this song. 
I love her vocals, of course. She's killing the game. I love the composition. I love the meaning behind it. It's just a great piece of music. Um, it's, I think, pretty straightforward um, that it's about her. Well, she was straightforward with it anyway. That it was about her alcoholism um, and party girl days, you know. First line is, party girls don't get hurt. Can't feel anything. When will I learn? And I think with this one, it's not as misused as the others, but a lot of people sing it like as their party song, like as more of a joyful thing. Because, you know, they hear, I'm going to swing from the chandelier. I'm going to live like tomorrow doesn't exist, you know, just party it up. But I mean, that's the whole song is about the highs and lows of her party girl days and that party girl life, you know? And I think what really drives this song are her vocals. Like she really like gives her all in that chorus. It's like she lets go, she lets go of everything and just pours her whole heart out in that chorus, belting out those notes. Um, so I'll play a little clip. It's hard to just choose little, uh, um, snippets from this because like the whole song, that's just it, the whole song, but I'll, I'll play a little bit of it so you can hear what I'm talking about as if you haven't heard the song 30,000 times already. Party girls, don't get hurt, can't feel anything When will I learn? I push it down, I push it down I'm the one for a good time call, phone's blowing up Bring on my doorbell, I feel the love, I feel the love I could just keep looping this for the entirety of the podcast if it were legally possible. <laughs> Such a good song. Um, I mean, you heard it. She kills the vocals. The arrangement is beautiful. It's it's just an all-around great song, just like the other songs I mentioned. Um, but, again, I just feel sometimes it's just put in the wrong situations. But this, all of these are open to interpretation. So, I mean, do with it what you will. This is just my opinion on the matter. I do have to say that when it first came out, I had so many younger students, like kids, maybe aged 7 to about 12, who wanted to sing this song. Because, you know, it's a big, fun, belty song. And I just didn't feel right letting the 7-year-olds 
saying about their battle with alcoholism. I mean, I know they don't think it's about that, you know, and I certainly didn't go in the lesson like you're singing about Sia's drug and alcohol problem. Do you have a drug and alcohol problem? No, but I did discuss it with the parents, though. Like, is it okay if they sing this? And most of the time they didn't care. They just heard Sia's vocals and was like, yes, please teach my child how to belt this song out. Get me on all those singing shows. <laughs> um, okay, so for this last one, I feel like I need to do this in segments because they're just... Too... <laughs> okay, well, the song is Do They Know It's Christmas um, by like the British version of the We Are The World folks, and they were called Live, Live Aid, I think. Band-Aid, sorry not live aid band aid um and it was a charity single again similar to we are the world um and they wrote it in 1984 in reaction to the ethiopia famine from 83 to 85 and they recorded it in a single day apparently and it was like a super group um, like all the British folks in music. Um, so I know they had Phil Collins, and he also played drums on it. I'm sure he sang as well. Um, they had Boy George. Um, George Michael was there too, I believe. Yeah, but this song, I the way it is used incorrectly. Let me start there. It is a Christmas song, um, but it's not like your regular happy-go-lucky Christmas carol, fa-la-la-la-la and all that. And when it first starts, it, it's not like it starts out joyful or anything. There is sort of a, I don't want to say somber, but sort of melancholy sort of feel to it. Um, I'll play that clip right now so you can hear. It's Christmas time. There's no need to be afraid. At Christmas time, we let in light and we vanish it. So yeah, I mean, it starts off with some promise. You think you're about to get into an uplifting, like, yeah, let's help the world out this Christmas. And the rest of the song is about that. But I feel like throughout the rest of it, they're trying to guilt you into it. <laughs> like, they go on like, there won't be snow in Africa this Christmas time. And the greatest gift they'll get this year is life. And nothing grows there. There's no rain or rivers. Like, do they even know it's Christmas, guys? I don't think so. It's like, okay, cool. I guess we'll donate now so they can know it's Christmas. But, I mean, it doesn't really snow in Africa as far as I know. So, 
I wouldn't go and say that defines Christmas. It doesn't snow in LA on Christmas. Do we know it's Christmas time over here? Should people send us money? And I'm not saying that they shouldn't have sent people in Ethiopia money for the famine. I'm just saying, don't use the snow as a tactic. Um, there are several. They're not funny, but they're funny to me clips that I want to play from here. Here's another one that really, like, hits at home. That's a bit heavy-handed. Okay, so that trio you heard at the end, I'm not sure who the third guy is, but the other two are Bono and um, Sting. And Bono is the one who wanted you to know, you know, thank God it's them instead of you, huh? <laughs> of course, they would use him to lay the guilt on strong. Um, so yeah, I... I th okay, so the way I feel this is misused is I always see it in somebody's Christmas special. And yes, it belongs in a Christmas special, but the way they're singing it, it's always a group of people like going caroling or something and they just look so happy and smiling throughout all of it. Like on Glee, when they went, see this part I thought fit. Um, in this particular episode of Glee, they went to a homeless shelter to help feed um, the homeless folks on Christmas. But then they started singing this. <laughs> and I think they used it because it says feed the world at the end. Like the chorus, feed the world. Bum, 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 bum. They do that at the end. So maybe that's why they used it, because they're feeding the needy. But the rest of it, I'm like, this doesn't involve them. They're not in Ethiopia starving. They're in America starving. And... Uh, it's snowing where you guys are. I mean, the show took place in Ohio. I, <laughs> but again, while they were singing it, they had like little kids up with them by the tree, like smiling and dancing around singing this song. And I'm like, this is not fitting at all. Nice try, though. Maybe they should just loop the end where they're doing the feed the world. But then they also say, don't they or do they know it's Christmas time during that portion? And again. For Glee, don't think it's needed. But, I mean, the song did help a lot, and it raised a lot of money, so good for them. And they still play it every doggone year on uh, 93.9 WLIT <laughs> when they turn the holiday light on. And I sing along with it every year, but still, still laying on that Christmas guilt.
throw that last bit in there so you guys could really hear. <laughs> they lay on that guilt real nice. Um, I mean, it's it's a Christmas song. That is true. I just don't think it should be in your cliche joyful Christmas stories. <laughs> Nor do I think you should have a group of little kids little homeless kids singing it with you standing in front of a tree smiling and dancing like it just doesn't seem right if I were one of those kids I'd be standing off to the side side eye and everybody like what exactly are you trying to say um <laughs> but that is my list guys hope you enjoyed it if you disagree with some of them that's fine let me know we can talk it out healthy discussion but thank you so much for tuning in to Brie and Friends. To stay updated with the latest episodes every Thursday and or Friday, subscribe via SoundCloud or Apple Podcasts at Brie and Friends. That's B-R-I ampersand friends. To get some behind the scenes and fun little updates, follow the show on Instagram and Facebook. Links to both, including my personal and music pages, are in the description box. Keep on keeping on, and I'll see you guys next week. Bye-bye.